This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as always, is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are here with week eight and the final week of All Things New, which is our series of messages that's been going on at Rio Vista Community Church covering the book of Ecclesiastes, contrasted with the book of Philippians. So if you've been if you've been keeping up with that message series, you'll know that uh, we did bring it to a conclusion this last week, uh, and so this is going to be our our final podcast on it. Hopefully, uh, you've been you've enjoyed this looking at the writings of Solomon contrasted with looking at the writings of Paul. They're very different, you know. One of them is really focused on life underneath the sun, like solely focused, like it's a, as Sam keeps saying, it's a thought experiment, and Paul is really focused on life in Christ, which is the definition of life above and beyond the sun. It's life everywhere but under the sun. Yeah. Uh, And so today, one of the reasons why we put these two passages together, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 16 and going to the end of the chapter, and then the very beginning of Philippians chapter 2, and it's how do you come to, to life, and what does it mean um, to be made in the image of God, like Paul is going to to get at that thought, and it makes a radical difference in how you see life in this world and what the world looks like when we live as God has designed us to. Mm. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and jump into it then. Ecclesiastes chapter three, beginning in verse sixteen, uh, it reads: Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness. Even there was wickedness. You know, I stopped right there. <laughs> I parked right there for a bit uh, as I was studying this because you know how these things where it's like say, hey, this really raises the question of X, Y, Z. To me, this immediately raised the question of, okay, well, where should I expect to find justice and where should I expect to find righteousness? Because obviously that's what Solomon's mm-hmm. trying to get our mind to, right? Yeah, and I I think that the answer, the the implication, he's saying, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there's wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there's wickedness. Then, well, the answer is, where do you find justice, and where do you find ultimately righteousness? The answer has to be beyond the sun, you know. Yes. And we look around here. We we did a survey in our church, and I don't I don't mean to beat up on anybody, but it kind of surprised me. So. Our church has fantastic theology. I want to I give that praise. Like when we asked particular questions, you know, overwhelmingly people agreed with the Bible. The one question that I looked at and the responses, they still weren't terrible, but they were way off, you know, the high numbers of the other questions, was the question, do you believe that mankind is basically good? And... I think a majority, maybe, of our church, it was it was a high number, said, yes, I believe that man is good. And I just want to pause there for a moment in case you're believing what's wrong with that, <laughs> to say the Bible absolutely does not teach that mankind is basically good. Right. Like, we are fallen creatures, we're selfish, and what you find throughout the scriptures and what you find throughout history 
is that anytime you give and you, you entrust somebody with power and authority, almost inevitably they are going to abuse that power for self-interest. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the toddler, you know, it's like I've, I've got four kids. I don't have to train my littlest one how to be selfish and hoard his toys and hit his sister when she grabs something. Like he's born with this selfishness in him, and we have to train him away from that. And so Solomon here is going, you know, look, I'm I'm going to the places where you should find justice. You should find justice in the courthouse. You should find justice and among the people of government that have stepped up to do things for you. You should find justice in these places. And when I go there, I find corruption. I find wickedness. I find self-serving. And in the place of, of righteousness, you know, fill in what that should be. You know, maybe church. Man, even in the churches, I'm seeing people that are fallen. I'm seeing people that are self-serving. I'm seeing people falling into scandal. And he's like, everywhere you go, the places that you think should be, you know, refuges from the brokenness of this world, they're all corrupt. And just so everyone knows, the two hosts of this podcast are also <laughs> corrupt. You know, we chase after Jesus. We want to be good. We want to die to ourselves and live for him and to show his goodness. But if you're expecting perfection from me or Mark, <laughs> you're, yeah, no. you're going to – and even in Out of Water, there was wickedness. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, there's not perfection there. The other thing I think is that it has to do with where people put their trust, their reliance. Um, I think that people look to – there's you know, it's, it's kind of a common thing. People have this attitude of, you know, I'm, I'm looking to the government to be my help. I'm looking to whatever social services, education system, whatever. That's going to be my, that's my, that's my salvation. From whence cometh myself my help, you know? And they're looking at that instead of looking at God, or they're looking to the church yeah. instead of looking to God. They're they're saying that that's where I'm going to, that's what I'm going to trust and rely on. And Solomon is making the point here that both the places that you find justice and the places you find righteousness, these are both institutions that are humanly created. Mm-hmm. They may be created at God's command. I think I believe that God has established government. Yeah, but there's a human element to it. But them. there's a human element to it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I think that, you know, as you say, he's telling us that the way the place that you're going to find justice and righteousness, the only place that you're going to find justice and righteousness is in is above the sun. Now, let me, let me say, the, yeah, the I was say let me say that, perfect justice. Right. I was just going to say that. I was going to jump in and say I don't want to I don't want to Yes, there is justice in the government, and there is righteousness in the church, and I have seen them both at different times. This is a, a kind of a self-admission because the place of justice, Solomon's the one who runs it. You know, it's like that is interesting, saying, is it not? <laughs> he, he's he's the top dog there, and he's saying, you know, there is wickedness. And w- when we're talking about the place of righteousness, you got to remember Solomon's writing this a thousand years before Jesus. And just before him, you had characters, you know, like the high priest Eli, whose sons were abusing women and collecting bribes as the high priest of Israel. So everything was just corrupt. Everything was just kind of stained with the corruption of humanity and where the weak and vulnerable should have been able to go to find protections. They failed. They really failed. And there were brilliant, bright, wonderful spots where real justice and righteousness shined through. But in the whole, it's like the entirety of the Old Testament is teaching us you can't 
put your hope in mankind because every hero that comes along, I mean, it's just like Adam comes and you think, oh, he's going to be great. And then he falls. And then Noah comes and you think he's going to be great. And then he falls. And then Abraham comes and he's going to be great. And he falls. And you can go through the whole Old Testament and you find every single human institution ultimately fails. And it's like the whole purpose of the Old Testament is getting us to realize that the redemption of man, the pursuit of justice and righteousness for humanity is a God-sized project. And it's not until you open the pages of the New Testament and you get to the Gospels that you find a human being who comes with perfect justice and perfect righteousness. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. And so Solomon is looking at this litany, this, this, this record of humanity, and he's saying, it's a mess. And it is a mess. We look at our world today, outside of Christ, it's a total mess. Uh, and so our hope for justice, perfect justice and perfect righteousness can only be found in Christ because left to ourselves, even there, it's wickedness. The church should be pointing you to the Lord. And that's where, you know, that's how you kind of can protect yourself against how do I know I'm being taken advantage of? Well, you know, is this answer something that drives you to the Lord? Is this answer something that turns mm-hmm. you to the Lord? Or is this something that turns you back to yourself or turns you, you know, within the, the rituals of the church? Um, that kind of a thing. And maybe that's a, a classically evangelical answer. I don't know. But that's but it's kind of my viewpoint, you know. And I think the same thing. That's, is, that's the biblical answer. Yeah. Okay, yeah, well, then I feel I good. I'm the on my good ground then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, there's there's only one hero. And I, and I can tell you, you know, having done so many family interviews with people who've come into the school and we talk about, you know, how they feel about Christianity and their history, you know, there's there's occasionally somebody who comes in my office that says, you know, I've walked away from religion or I want nothing to do with Christianity. And it's never because they find Jesus to be objectionable. You know, they never say, oh, all that grace and mercy and love stuff, psh, I want nothing to do with that. It's always I had a bad experience in the church. I, I, I reached out and they, they took advantage of me or they exploited a weakness or they shamed me or they made me feel bad. Um, and they point to the church and, and, and the right answer, the gospels don't run away from that. You know, <laughs> if you feel alienated by the people of God, you're in good company. Jesus was crucified <laughs> by the religious establishment, you know? But Jesus doesn't say, okay, well, then walk away from them. He wants you to understand that the church, which, you know, he says this is his institution, that he calls his body his bride, is to be founded in an ethic of humility. And so like what you're saying, if you find a church that doesn't come with that humility, where everybody recognizes, man, I'm a mess in need of a savior. I need mercy. I need grace. And therefore, I'm going to extend that out to others. If you find a church that presents itself as being put together and having all the answers, run. <laughs> yeah. Run. Because that that kind of hubris is the same dangerous religion that throughout the scriptures you find bringing terrible things. Jesus instead founds his church with this unbelievable sense of, of humility, of recognizing that salvation does not come from me. It's entirely a gift. The, it's like I've said before, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's, it's all him. Yeah. It's all his grace. So Solomon has to deal with the reality of this also in our in our text here. Solomon has to deal with the reality that he's not going to find 
or that or basically suggesting, you know, he's kind of stepping outside of himself here. Like you say, he's the guy that's responsible for the justice and he's stepping outside of himself here. And so what he's saying then in verse 17, he says, I said in my heart, in his own wisdom, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And I hear the birds singing turn 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 uh at that point because well this is by the way ecclesiastes three folks if you if you're not familiar maybe people don't know that song anymore sam we're maybe a younger crowd out there but do do i have to pay like royalties if i start singing you you will yeah we can't do that it's a copyright thing (laughs) but but folks just just look for it was it was to everything to everything turn 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 turn. turn. yeah that's very famous (laughs) song from our childhood and uh beautiful song actually I, i loved that song um, and that's, uh, this is the chapter that it's, that it's pulled from. And as you can see, it's, it's echoed here. So Solomon's consolation then for the wickedness that he saw both in the place where there should have been justice and in the place where there should have been righteousness is to rely on the fact that God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. Yeah. Um, that's he's, kind of, he's kind of breaking the rules of the thought experiment here. A little bit, because you know? he's introducing God, right? He's been telling you that's life under the sun, and he goes, wait a minute, the reason it's okay is that there's this judge who is above the sun who's going to come straighten this out. Yeah, You know, the fascinating thing about this is the greatest minds in history, they all come to the same conclusion. You know, you read, if you've ever read Plato's book, The Republic, and nerd alert here, He's, he spends the whole book examining, is there a possibility for justice in this world? And so the kind of the, the mission of the book is to look at all these different types of regimes, you know, that could come and reign. And he just dismantles them, you know, in the Republic. He says, oh, that won't work because of this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other. And he ultimately concludes that there's no, really, there's no possibility for justice in the world. And he kind of concludes his thought by saying, perhaps in heaven, you know, there is a pattern laid up that if we could see that beautiful pattern laid up in heaven, then it would make us righteous, which is pretty insightful, actually, um, because that's exactly what we do. You know, you see the beauty of Christ and you can't help but want to become like him mm-hmm. is kind of the idea. And Plato's saying that with no reference point for Christ <laughs> and, and as somebody who rejected the Greek gods. Um, but what is he saying? He's saying there's no hope for justice here. We're too corrupt, maybe in heaven. So even Plato and the pursuit of justice is saying we just got to look beyond the sun because it's not possible here. And I think that that's kind of a message to us also. I mean, the fact is that uh, our response as human beings, I'm not saying necessarily as church people, but just as human beings, when we see something where we're like, there is no justice, there is no righteousness, our response is, well, we have to do something about that. Mm-hmm. Sam, you and I have to rise up and, and cry out for justice. And, I'm, and that's not to say that we shouldn't seek justice. We shouldn't mm-hmm. cry out for justice. But ultimately, that doesn't rise and fall on you and me. Ultimately, no. justice and righteousness rise and fall on and, the Lord. And I've got news. There is no chance of there being perfect justice in this world on this side of glory. That's true. So if, if you're demanding perfect justice and anything short of that is going to put you in a tailspin, well, then just go ahead and, and resolve yourself to be tailspinning until glory yeah. because this world is not going to seek perfect justice. It's fallen. People are corrupt. They're self-interested and, and they exploit injustice. And so you can count on there being injustice in all sorts of ways. Yeah. 
So then Solomon says in verse 18, he says, I said in my heart, again, Solomon, I said in my heart, right? He's talking to himself. You know, this is in my, in my own wisdom, you know, as I see it. Um, Solomon, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Now, I, t- I found that phrase, God is testing them, interesting. It's like, the way I took that is that Solomon is saying, you know what? God wants to show you something. God is is putting something in front of you so that you will come to a realization. Or is there is there a sense of of the word test here that that is God actually testing us or is he just is does he just do things so that we understand that we're not special. <laughs> you know, in terms of in terms of being part of the animal kingdom, you know. The fact is that hey, you know what? All of us eventually have the same destination which is 6 feet under. Yeah, I think from the beginning, you know, you go back all the way to the fall and, you know, the consequences that God is going to, to, to lay upon Adam and Eve are both so that they realize uh, the fact that they need the Lord. Um, so, you know, when Adam, w- the whole reason why Adam falls is, is he wants to produce. He doesn't, he doesn't want any restrictions. And so he, he dismisses God in the pursuit of more, right? He wants to be like God. He wants to be in charge. And then when God comes and lays down the, the curse of the fall upon Adam, it's that the world is going to rebel against him. And what Adam is going to find is all the stuff that he's chasing after, you know, being in charge of the world and growing things, it's all going to be in rebellion and it leaves him empty. Like he can never get enough. He's never satisfied. And so even from the beginning, like the, the curses of the fall that are laid down on mankind are to make mankind realize that outside of God, nothing is satisfying. Like it's, you know, Adam and Eve, they made this decision that they would rather be like God than to be with God. Yeah. And the whole idea of what God wants us to see is that relationship is more important than possession. Relationship is more important than than work. It's more important than money. It's more important than than all of these other things. And that's going to be something that's driven home in this passage. People almost sort of welcome that, though. They sort of welcome this idea that, you know what, there's that we're nothing but beasts because (laughs) animals don't take any responsibility for each other. Mm -hmm. I think that the world is looking for an excuse. Man is looking for a reason to not have to treat their fellow man decently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if we're all just animals, you know what? The badger does not care. <laughs> you know, they, that's, that's a, that's yeah. a re- inter- internet reference that the honey badger video. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> I just got that. Just I, got I know it. the reference. I'm you know the reference. With myself. You're there. The badger does not care. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's, there's this idea that, you know, animals behave instinctually and they can't be held responsible for, for following their instinct or, or we believe that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I think that's what people want for themselves too. They want to say, Hey, you know what? You can't hold me. I'm not responsible for you. I don't have any obligation mm-hmm. to you because you know, I, Hey, I'm out here foraging for food the same way you are, man. And if you can't get your own nuts and twigs, forget about it. You know, that sort of thing. Uh, so I do think there's a sense in which it's, it's a message that's almost welcomed by people. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're just animals, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting theme that's going to take place right out of the gates of Genesis after creation where you have two different paths of humanity. And there's, there's one path where they draw near to the Lord and they're merciful and they're kind and they kind of become – you know, more in the ethic of God. And then there, then you have a line of people 
that kind of seize power. It's all about me. It's all about, mm-hmm. you know, what I can get for myself. And one of the fascinating things that you'll find, particularly in Genesis, is all of the people who say, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to just snatch it and take hold. They're always described in very beastly terms. And mm-hmm. I, I'll give you just a few examples. So hang with me. So Cain, right? You have Abel who goes and worships God out of gratitude and gives the best. Then you have Cain who's like, I want God obligated to me. He takes an offering and God's like, you know, if that's your heart, you know, I'm not showing favor on that. And Cain's furious, right? He's got this murderous rage inside of him, this envy. And God looks at him and says, hey, Cain, sin is what? Crouching at the door. In other words, like a you inside yeah. of you, you're becoming beast-like and you need to master it. You know, the the original of creation was that man was made to rule over the beasts, and now Cain, you're starting to transform like a beast. You need to master that. And what does Cain do? He doesn't. He goes out in a field and murders his brother. What well, you can you can fast forward through the rest of the Bible and all of these characters sure. that that stand opposed to God. You know, Ishmael is going to be a wild donkey of a man. You know, or Esau comes along and how's he described? He's beast. He's hairy. He's I was just thinking like the same a, like thing. Like an animal. Yeah. What What did they do when Isaac? Uh, when they were fooling Isaac, they wrapped Jacob in. Yeah. Beast skins, right? Yeah, and beast skins to make him look like Esau. Right. Or or the brothers of Joseph who are going to betray him. What happens there? You know, they throw him into a pit, then they sell him down to Egypt. But what do they do? They take his multicolored coat, they dip it in blood, and they take it back to the father, Jacob, and they say, wild beasts devoured him, you know. Is the idea. Well, who are the wild beasts? Well, they are. And so there's two different paths. The people who say, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to follow after the Lord, those are honored. But everybody who says, I'm going to get my way no matter what, they become beastly hmm. in the scriptures. And so, and That's you can see, I mean, That's you, very interesting. You, yeah. you, you look around uh, even the world today, and it's really incredible how humanity can so quickly devolve into beastly, angry, hateful, vicious behavior. Um, but that is when we say, I'm going to get what I want no matter what. Mm. You really do. And and so the alternative to that is to become more like God. Solomon goes on in verse 19. He reinforces this. He said, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. So that's mm-hmm. that's like the ultimate statement of under-the-sun futility. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like you are flesh and bone, and you know what? You're going to be dust someday. Both you and your goldfish and your little dog, too. <laughs> You're all just going to be the same. And if there's no hope of resurrection, one pile of dust isn't any better than the other pile of dust. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then Solomon goes on and says a pretty interesting thing to me. He said, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Now, I assume it's just metaphorical to say the spirit of man goes upward, the spirit of beast going down on the earth, meaning that the beast is buried and that's it. Or even does your soul depart the body? Does it does it go into the heavens? Like, yeah. is, is there more to you than just the flesh? One of the, one of the things that I love that, that C.S. Lewis said, and I can't remember which of his books, but I think it's pretty brilliant. Um, but he says, we are, we are souls with a body 
not bodies with souls. Essentially oh, something something good. along those lines. That's good. And so like, you know, when I was talking with my mom who was diagnosed with, you know, fairly advanced lung cancer and she's doing well right now, you know, having having recovered from that, still getting scans all the time. But we had to talk about mortality. And that idea was super comforting to her and my dad. Like, mom, you are not a body with a soul, you know, and that when when you die, it's just there's it's lights out, nothing more. You're a soul that's living in this tent, as the New Testament describes the body. You're a soul living in the tent. You know, the, your body doesn't define you. Your soul in you is the essence of who you are. And that's going to go on. It doesn't need a body to survive. And so when Solomon's saying, we, you know, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes into the earth, it's, it's kind of pulling that like, is there something more to us that goes on when the body gives way? Um and yes, the answer is yes. I think that that's something that uh, I, mean, I think it's something that people sort of feel or they sort of know that instinctively. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a sense in which I don't know. People just get I, I, I just believe that people have this this understanding that we are more than just a bunch of chemical and electrical processes. Oh, and Solomon just touched on this. So we started in chapter 3, verse 16, but if we look ahead or before and go back to verse 11, I mean, look what Solomon says here before he gets to this point. He says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, listen to this, he has put eternity into man's heart. So God has made us with this instinct that we know there has to be something more. We know that all of our experience and our soul and our heart and our love and our relationships and everything else that's inside of us doesn't just go dark, non-existent mm-hmm. at the moment of death. We know something has to to go on. And if you were to say, you know, at the moment of death, it's just lights out, you, no more experience, just a vacuum of anything – like our brains and hearts refuse to accept it. There's yeah. something in us that's instinctual that knows that we go on. And then in verse 22, he says, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. Oh, for that is his lot. <laughs> Who can bring him to see what will be after him? You know, it's, it's always a funny thing because um, there are people who who I will talk to sometimes that know that I like my job. I do like my job very well. Mm-hmm. I love my job. I, I get to do some. I get to do work that I feel is meaningful, that interests me. I work with people that I love. I work. I just. I love my job as jobs go. But I'm not going to lie to you. If I could, if I could just be not working, if I could be like on permanent vacation, I would take that. I don't, I don't, it doesn't mean that I don't love what I do. I do. But, you know, when I look at something like this is like your work, that's your, that's your lot. That's the best you have. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and, and I'm saying this as somebody who genuinely loves what he gets to do. Right. Yeah. I think you would still do it. If you weren't working, if you weren't getting a paycheck, and I said, "Hey, let's do a Bible study," you'd be like, "Oh, yay!" Yeah, you know, like, you'd be all about it. Yes, I would. I, I'm I not, think it's I, the obligation and the timetables and the deadlines. Yes. And I think it, that's the kind of stuff where it's like, uh, "Get it away." Yeah, but you know what? If I believed that that all I was was what I did for a living, what I did for work, mm-hmm. that would be so 
crushing. I mean, if you ask me what am I about, I would talk to you about my family, my friends, about the ministry I serve. But the fact is that I don't see myself in terms of, hey, man, you build a great website or you do the way you maintain this app is brilliant. You know, I'm really I see myself as somebody who is about relationships and about and about content and about words and thoughts and ideas. So I think also one of the things that that maybe we bring out of this is when it when it you when it says work, you know, the the concept of a job in the ancient world, you know, when Ecclesiastes is being written, yeah. is a little different than the kind of work, you know, we have careers where we punch, you know, time clocks and stuff like that. So how so was it different? So in the ancient world, this is talking about what you do. It's it's not just one particular task. It's like your the life that you're living, the all in. You know, as a shepherd, it's your whole life. So it's it's basically all the stuff that you're doing is the idea. If you're going to reject the gospel and you're going to say that there is no hope of heaven or something beyond this world, then the best thing that you can do in this world is enjoy every moment. Like, really, don't don't think about what's coming. Don't wonder about your purpose. Don't don't think outside of each moment and try to enjoy every moment because there's no purpose to it. Don't mm. think what's going to come after you. Don't wonder what difference your work is making. Don't think, you know, what implications does my life have? Don't think, why am I suffering? Because all of those questions will crush you. Be so myopic and only look at the moment and try to suck as much joy out of every moment as you can because outside of the moment, there is nothing for you. And, you know, that's, in one sense, that's the only, if you're, if you're rejecting God, if you're rejecting heaven, that's the only way you can navigate life hmm. um, is to be myopic with blinders on, looking at the moment, hoping you get to enjoy this moment because there's no meaning to any of it. It's interesting because I think you just described, you know, postmodern thought in general. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really? I mean, look, we started with Life magazine, then we went to Us magazine, then we went to Me magazine. It's like, you know, it's just this gradual progression of, of, of looking inward and inward and inward. And by the way, I, I understand what they mean when they say my life is about experiences rather than things. I, mm-hmm. I understand that and I actually affirm that because I think that, that if your life is about possessions and you, that you will eventually disappoint yourself. Mm-hmm. So I, I get all that. And by the way, I think everybody should do that. You right. should rejoice in your work. You should look at what you're doing and find delight in it. Like everybody should do that. Christians, non-Christians, do the best you can. But what Solomon is, the distinguishing mark is then Solomon asks the questions, who can bring him to see what will be after him? So what he's saying is, whereas the Christian can think beyond the moment and have hope and, and can walk through suffering and find hope, if you don't have anything outside of yourself, don't ask yourself the question, who can bring him to see what will right. be after him? <laughs> because right. that question will crush you. I mean, how many times, Sam, do we have to see the person who has it all, quote unquote, the, the mm-hmm. Hollywood celebrity, the fabulously wealthy person who commits suicide and says, mm-hmm. there's nothing. I, I couldn't go on. And you're like, how can you not go on? You had everything. They found they found what Solomon found is that you think all this stuff is going to satisfy you. And then you get it, and it's hollow. Yeah. It's empty. Yeah. Well, can we go to Philippians now, please? (laughs) (laughs) Because, because, I just want to say this, Philippians chapter 2 is one of my favorite opening sentences to any of Paul's chapters ever. 
because Philippians chapter two, verse one reads, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And I want to say that the so if that word very definitely means since it's like so if there is and we know there is basically what he's saying is since there is encouragement from Christ comfort from love and then because of that he says complete my joy by being of the same mind same love being in full accord in one mind what Paul Hmm. wanted to see more than anything else is he wanted to see his children in the faith his the people that he had invested his life into he wanted to see them have unity be of mm-hmm. you know to be of one mind it's it's like we we celebrate our individuality in this world we celebrate the distinctions between us we celebrate the diversity and you know what i think there can still be a tremendous amount of diversity and distinctiveness between us but at some point i think we also need to look for those things that bind us together those things that we have in mm-hmm. common and there's nothing that is more so that than a common faith. I can tell you as somebody who's been around church his entire life, it seems like, certainly most of my adult, adult life, most of my adult life in this church, the one that you and I serve now, mm-hmm. I will tell you that I am friends with some people that are the most preposterous. I would never be friends with them apart. <laughs> and yet they've become some of my best and dearest friends over the years because mm-hmm. we started from this basis of having this one mind and being unified in our faith in Christ and in our walk in Christ. And it is better than I'm a fan of the same sports team. It's better than it should be anyways, better than anything else. And I think that's what Paul's mm-hmm. calling to here. Yeah. And, you know, I think when, when we talk about the idea that Paul is calling us to have one mind and one purpose and all of these uh, kinds of things, uh, we can tend to say, you know, he's calling us away from our individuality. No, and not th- at all. Yeah. The reality, the reality is no, it's it's in the gospel. It's in being a part of God's, you know, mosaic that he is creating as part of the body of Christ where your individuality has more consequence than it would without it. So it, it's like, I mean it's like a a jigsaw puzzle. You know, you take one piece out of it and the picture is way off. It needs that one piece even though that one piece is entirely unique. It's shaped differently, it's colored differently. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's entirely unique, but it's when it comes together in the context of the broader puzzle that that piece really matters. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um and and it actually contributes. It's more valuable. Um, and so in our individuality, when we allow the Lord, you know, he made us, by the way. So all the unique things that you find in me, when I'm being godly anyway, <laughs> all the unique things that you find in me, you know, God gave me all of those things. And he gave them to me, not just for myself. You know, he gave, this sounds, I don't mean this to sound arrogant, but God has made me to bless others. He's made you with your talents and abilities and all the ways that he's made you unique to bless others. And in our in our mindset modern day, we think, okay, he's made me like this, and now I need to suck all the marrow out of life for me. Right. And, and Paul is saying, no, no, no. Like, not only are you made to to be in the joy of this dance, but you're made to bless others. Other people need what God has made you to be. If I could be so bold as to read something else from Paul. He makes that point in uh, 1 Corinthians 12. 
For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, then that would not make it any less a part of the body. Um, And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So Paul absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, if, if anything that I he said about He says it much better than I do. Just <laughs> use him and get rid of my rambling. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, that's the, that's the whole thing about diversity there. Paul certainly celebrates diversity. Yeah, divert, one of the things I was listening to a, a pastor recently talk about, you know, when, when God made all of the, the nations and all the different races, you know, that come out of, you know, Genesis 11 – when we get to glory, he doesn't reverse that. You know, he celebrates the diversity that will be in heaven. There will be every nation represented, every race, every every tongue, you know, is going to be around the throne of God. But in all of that diversity, we come together with one common purpose of love and faith and and to to come together in the in the body of Christ. And that's really, really beautiful. But, uh, you know, a lot of times we sacrifice the common mission of humanity at the altar of diversity. And that's, that's not good. And I think it is something that um, is reinforced every single time that we turn on the television these days or, or look yeah. on social media. We spend so much time and energy focused on the things that are tearing us apart. Um, and that is never going to get us anywhere. You yeah. know? Amen. Um, so Paul goes on to make a point about that in verse 3, Philippians 2, 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And as soon as I read that, Sam, I said, where are the cameras? Paul has been hiding cameras. Uh, <laughs> somebody knows something I don't want them to know. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And I thought, if I was going to look for the best definition of humility right here, Humility is about elevating the ones around you. I love the turn of phrase. I think it's Lewis that says this, where it's uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself; it's thinking of yourself less. Yes, <laughs> you know, yeah. Where, where you're, you know, the acronym for joy that we teach kids: Jesus, others, yourself. Right. Um, J O Y. And I think there's something to that. And one of the things that I was actually in a conversation with somebody the other day about going through bouts of depression when dark clouds won't lift and you just feel like, man, this is, this is a hard season. One of the best things that you can do for your heart is to get outside of yourself and go serve others and participate yes. in worship. It'll pull, it's, it's the very last thing you want to do when you're in a dark season, but it is absolutely what will lift you right out of it. Um, and, you know, I've said before in, in our pastoral meetings, you know, humility really is the gateway to every Christian virtue. It is. Um, it, 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 it is. At the foot of love. It's at the foot of service. It's at the foot of forgiveness and mercy and grace and all these different things have to come when you say, you know what? The mission of God and the well-being of my neighbors is more important than what I want right now. And that's humility. 
And in case we weren't paying attention, in verse 4, Paul reinforces that by saying, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, Paul's not saying don't look to your own interests. You should. You have responsibilities to your family, to your job. To You should look to your own interests. You should take care of business, you know, so to speak. But you should also look to the interests of others. But then he goes on to... And this really is the whole point of this passage, which mm-hmm. is to to hold up in front of us the the model of humility that none of us can ever begin to even approach, even in the slightest sense. Mm-hmm. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. This was the infinite God of the universe. He holds all of creation in his mind at one time. I mean, this is a, an infinite being and that he chose to wrap himself up in the same kind of wrappers that we are grumpy about all the time. He dealt with the same aches and pains and itches and scratches and, and hungries and tireds that we did. He, he limited himself in that way to come down and be born in the likeness of men. Look, I've seen the Transformers movie. This is way beyond anything like that. I don't care if the giant robot becomes a Volkswagen Beetle. This is the infinite God of the universe became a man. Um, That's the most amazing downsizing ever. This passage, in terms of passages about humility, this passage is kind of the the pinnacle. You know, it's, it's such a really incredible thing and what it's doing and the way that it's it's putting itself forward is it's it's actually contrasting jesus with humanity Mm -hmm. you know back in the garden at the very beginning when when satan came to eve and said you know eat of the fruit snatch up the throne do what you want disobey god you know you can have it all your way just just take and eat and you will be like god and here, stop for a moment here and imagine, here you have a human being who then snatches both Eve and Adam, will snatch and say, I deserve to be like God, even though they're the creature, right? And so they snatch it and they do what we talked about earlier that makes men like beasts. And so then imagine that in contrast hmm. now with God, real God, like in the form of God, the very essence of God who comes into the world and it says, does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's not something I'm going to snatch and hold on to and say, no, this is mine. I must have it. But instead, you know, here you have God who not only empties himself out into the form of a man and takes on the form of a servant. So like a lowly human being born in the likeness that so he takes on the image of men. He makes man in the image of God. And now you have God taking on the image of men. What? And then it says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so what it's telling you is, okay, here you have God who looks at man, right? So uh, this is so rich. In the beginning, you had man who looked at God and said, I want power. And so they snatch the fruit to try to become like God. And they throw away the relationship, the love of God, how he chased after them. And, and we totally failed to love well. And now here you've got the picture of God who sets aside all those privileges. Incredible. 
Mm-hmm. And he comes into the world as a servant, as a man, born in the image of man. And not just that, he will stop at nothing to serve us and redeem us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. It's like he just keeps lowering himself. You know, he, be- he becomes a man. He-, he endures everything. He's a servant to all. He, he doesn't take privilege in being God. Like you'll never find a miracle that Jesus does in the Gospels where he does it selfishly. It's always to teach, always to pour out, always to serve. And then he lays down the ultimate expression of love Mm -hmm. by being willing to die for us. Mm. It's it's and and so that is the the opposite of Genesis. And so this is is something that I've, I've I may have said before. But when the serpent looked at Eve and said, you could be like God, in her mind at that moment, she had a particular impression where she thought to herself, ooh, being like God, that means you know I get everything I want and I'm powerful and nothing stands in my way and I can, I can, I'm, gonna, I'm not vulnerable anymore. I can, I can power, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then Philippians 2, it says, hold on a minute. No, no, no. You want to be like God? Let's define what that looks like in the person of Jesus Christ who Mm -hmm. is God. And you want to know what it is to be like God? It's somebody who puts the interests of others above himself, who even though he is God doesn't count equality with God, something to be snatched and held tight, but he's willing to lay it all down and to serve and even go to a cross and die to lift others up. It's it's unbelievable. And so it's like, okay, one path of trying to be like God when you snatch and rebel is going to make humanity into beasts. And that's the satanic option. Just take it. Do what you want. Just you deserve it, you know. And then the other side comes and says, "No, no, no. Lay yourself down. You want to be like God? It comes through loving. It comes no. through mercy. It comes through humility." And that will create a world that everybody wants to live in. And so here's the two options. Everybody wants to be like God. If you have a real sense of who God is, you'll make the world a beautiful place with humility and service. If you think the satanic route of being like God where you just snatch it and take everything you want, you'll make the world filled with the dysfunction and hatred and animosity of a world of beasts. Verse 9, it says, therefore, which is always the... So that's a mm-hmm. theological term, meaning pay, did you, I hope you were paying attention because here's the pop quiz. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It, well, f- first of all, <sighs> yeah. Uh, that that phrase, the name that is above every name, that's a, a phrase that to to modern day Americans in particular it doesn't really mean as much as it probably should mean. Um, can you give us some context there? Yes, I mean, and and in the ancient world, when when you referred to somebody's name, it was like in, the whole encapsulation of who of they were, their yeah. essence, all of them. And so, like in the beginning, when you have the first revival going all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, it says, "And people began to call on the name of the Lord." Well, it's not like they, you know, if you were to call on the name, of, you don't just. It's not like they were outside going, "Sam, Sam," you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were they were wanting God. They wanted Him. Um, the name of the Lord. That's that's why in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, when we talk about "Hallowed be Thy name," it's not just the name. 
that we're we're trying to lift up and exalt as holy. It's Him. He is He is the God. And so, when it says He is the name that's above every name, it means that His essence as a being is so far above every other person, entity, being, creature, whatever. It's not even close. And mm-hmm. so it's talking about the entire essence of who he is. You know, we've all seen that Saturday afternoon matinee where the guy in the ill-fitting suit of armor draws his sword and says, I come in the name of the king. And everybody <laughs> immediately defers to them because coming in the name of the king mean you came with all of the king's authority, all of the who the king is, the way you should treat the king. In other words, you treat me like you would treat mm-hmm. the king because I'm carrying the name of the king. It's like all of his weight and authority mm-hmm. and power and his essence, as you said. If somebody says, look, I want to follow you know, God, I want to follow Christ, I want to be like Jesus, um, that the path to glory, the path to glorifying God, mm-hmm. because that's where it says it winds up here, it goes through the road of making yourself a servant, mm-hmm. you know? I would say that that is one of the chief ethics of the Bible, maybe the chief ethic of the Bible. And and you see it again and again repeated throughout the Old Testament and again into the New, is that the proud are going to be humbled. Mm-hmm. And those that are humble are going to be exalted. You see it again and again and again. And so here you have Jesus, who is the ultimate form of humility, is now being the ultimate form of exaltation. The Lord has taken him, who showed more humility than anyone else ever. You know, God going to servant death on a cross. And now, as a result, God is exalting him, name above every name. Mm -hmm. You know, it's... And that's in store for us. Like, if we humble ourselves, the way up is down. It's the upside down kingdom. <laughs> it's the way God works. Um, and that's, that's just, that's just how he works. He takes the lowly, the poor, the, the outcast, the left out. And, you know, by faith, he's going to take them. And by his grace, he's going to take them. And when we get to heaven, you know, those are the, the people who, you know, I think their their seats are going to be a little bit closer to the throne, honestly. Mm-hmm. Isn't that, I mean, Jesus, that's what he said when he was, when the, uh, his disciples were squabbling among themselves. Lord, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? That's exactly right. You know, he had an answer for them. The greatest yeah. is, you know, that, that the least will be greatest. The one that is the servant will be the greatest. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that has always been the biblical ethic. I was just going to say, you know, when you were talking about the name that's above every name, and, and you gave the example, I come in the name of the king. Um, one of the things about the third commandment that I just think is is really because we when we think of you know thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, we really quickly say oh well don't say these expressions these are these expressions are bad don't say them, but the greater meaning behind the third commandment is that every single one of us if we take on the name of Christ if we go around and tell the world that we are Christians, then it's like we're coming to the world saying I come in the name of the King. And if you live in a way that brings shame to that name, you're violating the third commandment. You really are. You're 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 bringing shame to the name. You're making his name look weak or or trashy. And so there's tremendous gravity. There's tremendous responsibility. If you say I come in the name of Christ as a Christian, man, you'd better represent that name as though it's holy because if you abuse people or you exploit people or you you know, are are trashy under his name. That's one of the things that's really important to him. You yeah. know, you share in that name, so yeah. you you represent it well. So then Paul concludes in verse twelve here with a a verse that is one that was that has been at times 
when I've when people have encountered it for the first times, a tiny bit controversial. Um, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I have at times, especially with folks that are new Christians or new to the faith or new in Bible classes and around, they get very concerned about this. Paul's not saying that we should work for our salvation. Paul's saying that we should work out our salvation, this idea that this salvation that is in you, this kingdom of God that is in you, that um, that, that needs to come out and that that will come out. You know, um, It's not talking about working for your salvation. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think this really addresses, you know, there is a, there used to be, and I think this is kind of going away, but for a while there, two, three decades ago probably, there was a big movement that if we could just get people to pray the prayer of salvation, you know, and the words came out of your mouth, then you were saved and we could move on and just kind of forget about you. Okay, another one's going to heaven and we'd leave people behind in the wake. Um, and then there would be never any fruit, any discipleship, and you know maybe what they prayed wasn't even sincere. They didn't feel it in their heart, but it was just like you know check it off. And I think one of the things that that Paul is getting at here, and Peter touches on this as well when he says you know that you're to make your calling and election sure, is you know if while you're it's, this is a Luther quote, but he says you know while you're while you are saved by faith alone, that faith never remains alone. Right. Um, if if God, if you've really embraced the way that salvation works, is if you've really embraced the gospel, there's the promise that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you, and the Holy Spirit empowers you to become more and more conformed into the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit's inside of you, bringing conviction for sin, and the Holy Spirit's inside of you, prodding you toward godliness. Right. Well, if you are living and you think, well, I don't feel any of that and I never have, then there's a reason to kind of wrestle through that and to, to say, you know what, is this sincere? I think one of the greatest tragedies of the old way of doing evangelism like that is there's a lot of people that are self-assured that they really have salvation, that they really are surrendering and trusting in Christ, but they never have. They're looking back saying, oh, yeah, I prayed a prayer sometime, you know, eight years ago, and, and that was that, and now I've kind of moved on with my life. No. <laughs> you, <laughs> like, you, you were to be doing inventory, like, you know, am I yielded? Is the Spirit at work in me? And here's here's some good news. If that's something that you hear and you go, oh, my goodness, like, what, what – then the Spirit's working in you. <laughs> you right. know, it's – the Spirit's moving, and so there's comfort in that, but – I do think that there's some element where, you know, you're not working for your salvation, but you're looking for evidence of your salvation. Mm -hmm. Maybe we say you don't work for your salvation, your salvation works you (laughs) or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it says that for it is God who works in you. I mean, it says it right there in the passage. Right. So uh, there is that sense in which uh, this is not an experience that is going to leave you unaffected or unchanged. Mm -hmm. Um, And I and I get the whole you know, I, I've had the conversations with people that, well, but the thief on the cross. I'm like, that's true. I, I get that. There are three things that the thief on the cross did. So you look at the simplest formula for what's required for salvation. This is just kind of fascinating. It's the thief on the cross. He does he does three things. One, when the other thief is is trashing Jesus, he, he says, hey, 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 stop it. We deserve what we're getting. And so there you see his humility. I am a mess. I'm a sinner. That's right. basically what he's saying. He says, but he is righteous. So he's acknowledging that Jesus is righteousness. And then he looks at Jesus and says, 
remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, this guy's hanging on a cross. He's going to die within a matter of hours. He's he's totally incapacitated, and this thief is looking at him saying, I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the one who's going to conquer death. That's the only reason why it makes sense to say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right. And so he expresses faith that he's going to triumph over death, that he is God, and that's it. It's just that. I'm a sinner. God is not. He is righteous, and he controls and has the power of resurrection. And that is the simplest formula for salvation you can find in the Bible. Has there ever been a greater statement of faith than when a guy hanging on a cross looks at another guy hanging on a cross and says, remember me, Lord, when you come in your kingdom? Is, yeah. Has there ever been a greater statement of faith than that? Really? I, I mean, that, people must have been watching that going, what? Yeah. <laughs> when you come into your kingdom, what? Yeah. yeah, so it is. The thief on the cross did not have a lot of time to live a changed life and so forth, but there's no question that he had a changed life. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know. and it, the Lord says that that it, it's only it only takes a mustard seed of right. faith to move a mountain. And again, I'm not I'm not trying to suggest to anybody out there that uh, what we do improves our standing with God in terms of you know we our standing with God and is by His calling. It blows me away. Like this is actually it's kind of laughable. Like I'm I'm smiling as I say this because when you when you come before the Lord and you say yeah 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 okay Jesus came into the world he humbled himself he became a servant he died on a cross he did all that for me but but really God look at what I've done <laughs> you know like it's just <laughs> what have you done like you have nothing that can add to the in- unbelievable thing that Jesus has done for you, that God became a man, lived a perfectly righteous life, gave you his perfections, took your sin, died on a cross in unbelievable agony, suffered the wrath of God to pay the penalty of your sin, and you're going to go before God and say, yeah, 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 that that was nice, but look what I've done. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. that's just insanely arrogant. Uh, and when I remember when I first came to faith, the idea that salvation could be free was was offensive to me like god's too holy like no way i get into heaven without contributing something and then i started realizing hold on a minute god is so holy that there's nothing i could ever possibly contribute that would qualify me to be in his presence forever like it's insane to think we can earn him and only Jesus can. This was a God-sized project that Jesus accomplished, and now we receive it. It's entirely by grace, but the God who loves us enough to take us as we are loves us too much to leave us as we are. That's – yes. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's it right there. I think that's where we stop <laughs> because that, uh, that, that sums it up. The God that takes us as we are does not leave us as we are. Thank God. We're going to let that stand as our last word for today. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us and for this entire series of All Things New, comparing Ecclesiastes with Philippians. Um, we're going to start something new next week. I'll be honest with you. We haven't actually decided exactly what it's going to be yet. Um, we're still in the discussion phases as to whether we're going to track along with the next message series or whether we're going to do something different. Um, but whatever it is, I know it's going to be fascinating and high quality because Sam's going to be here and I'm going to make jokes. That's my job. <laughs> Right, right. (laughs) If you have 
something that you'd like to contribute, a thought, a suggestion, a question, something like that, uh, we invite you to email us. That's out of water at riovistachurch.com, R-I-O, vistachurch.com. You can also find all of the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast by going to our website at riovistachurch.com slash out of water. You can also find us on um, Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or on Spotify, and find all the back episodes of the show there as well. We'll be back with another episode next week. And we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.